This is The Rounds Table. Hello, Roundtable listeners. This is your co-host today, Paxton Bach. I am a general internist in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I'm happy to have a new host with us joining us, Dr. Tristan Gilchrist. Hey, Pax. It's nice to be here. So Tristan is also a general internist in Vancouver, and this is his first time on the show today. So Tristan, you've heard the show, you know the routine, not much room for small talk, so let's dive right into our papers then today, and why don't you tell us first what paper you'd like to talk about today? Sure, let's get going. I chose the paper Statins for Primary Prevention of Cardiovascular Events and Mortality in Old and Very Old Adults with and Without Type 2 Diabetes, a retrospective cohort study. This comes from Ramos and colleagues and was in the BMJ in September 2018. Okay, sure, that sounds like a pretty topical paper and that's, that's quite a mouthful. Tell us then, Tristan, from this paper, what is the bottom line from this article? So this was a retrospective cohort study of almost 47,000 individuals who were 75 years or older without clinically recognized atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And it compared the incidence of disease and all-cause mortality between new statin users and non-users. And they found that there was a benefit in patients who were aged 75 to 84 who had diabetes, but no benefit with statin use in people who didn't have diabetes or people with diabetes aged 85 and over. Interesting. So this is really seeing more and more people starting to dive into these older populations and what interventions may or may not apply in more um, elderly groups. So why don't you tell us then, uh, for a way of background, why personally this was important article for you to bring to the show? Well, I I tend to be a bit of a minimalist in my practice, and so I always appreciate publication of so-called negative studies. When it comes to my older patients, I find I like to have them on as few medications as possible, and they obviously appreciate that too. And so as they point out in this study, most elderly patients have a high Framingham or other risk score based on their age alone. And in recent years, statin prescriptions have actually been rising in the elderly without any real evidence of benefit. So I thought it was important for us to figure out whether it's worthwhile to increase that pill burden and expense for these patients and see if they're really getting a benefit from it. It's also, I think, really important to know that the different societies have different recommendations, which tells us that the evidence has been spotty in this area. You know, the NIH recommends primary prevention statins up to age 84. The European cardiologists recommend treatment to age 65 and the American Heart Association to age 85. And here at home, the CCS says that primary prevention should be started in everybody with a high-risk modified Framingham, which would actually include all men who are 75 and older. Awesome. Yeah, I think that sets it up really nicely. And and I got to say, I I tend to agree with you. I'm also on the conservative side for prescribing, especially in these elderly populations. And I also appreciate negative trials, although I'm not so sure that I would categorize this as a negative trial per se. But let's dive into it then and get into the details. So tell us specifically, what was the study design here and where did the study take place? So this was essentially a single center or single location retrospective cohort study. They used data from the Spanish Information System for the Development of Research in Primary Care. This is an anonymized clinical database that's been used in previous studies, and it includes about 80% of those living in the Catalan region, or about 10% of the total population of Spain. Now, I have never heard of this database before, but I'm impressed. This sounds like a really robust source of data for a study like this one. 
Yeah, I don't know that I've ever seen another study coming out of the database. It does tend to be, I think, focused in primary care, but it includes a lot of anonymized data about the patients and includes lots of diagnostic codes, lots of information about their admissions and discharges from hospital. So I think there's a lot of information there that they can use for this sort of retrospective study. Fantastic. So which patients then from this database did they select for the purposes of this paper? So they took everybody in the database who was 75 years and older who had had at least one visit in the 18 months before the index date they chose. They decided to exclude anybody who had established cardiovascular disease, as these people should clearly already be on a statin for secondary prevention. They also excluded people with any type of frailty bias, so people who had an existing diagnosis of cancer, dementia, uh, paralysis, people who were already dialysis dependent, in residential care, or who had an organ transplant. And there were a few other similar, smaller exclusions. They also excluded anybody who had received a statin in the 18 months prior to that index date. And I thought that was pretty clever of them to recognize that frailty bias ahead of time and exclude those patients. Yeah, I think it's just one of the pieces that shows that they have a really thoughtful approach to this study. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the exposure then that they were looking at specifically? They were looking at new statin starts in this age group. So they did exclude anybody who was already getting a statin in the past. So they wanted to see if starting it at this age was going to have any benefit. And they defined that start as filling at least two prescriptions during their enrollment period of the study. So they wanted to make sure it wasn't a single use of statin, that somebody was on it for at least some period of time. And then they stratified those patients by whether or not they had diabetes. They also used propensity score adjustments before they calculated the hazard ratios to try to remove some of the confounding. Yeah, so again, something that we're seeing more and more often in these retrospective trials, that propensity score matching to try and minimize some of that bias. And what were the outcomes specifically that they were examining again in this study? They had two primary outcomes that they looked at. So one of them was all-cause mortality, and the second was atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which they defined as new coronary heart disease or new stroke. And then they also had secondary outcomes where they looked at coronary heart disease and stroke as separate outcomes. They also included a number of adverse events, looking at liver toxicity, myopathy, and new onset type 2 diabetes, cancer, or hemorrhagic stroke. As in previous studies, these are things that have been questioned as possible adverse events related to statin use. Excellent. Okay, so you set it up really nicely then. So I think I have a pretty good grasp on the trial. Let's dive into the results then. What did they actually find? All right, so the patients ended up being 46,864 people in the database. 7,500 of those, about 16% started on a statin, and about 7,800 of them had diabetes. And they had a median follow-up with these patients of 7.7 .7 years. Uh, great, so a pretty large sample size then here, and it sounds like they were able to follow them for a pretty significant amount of time as well. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a pretty big database. They had lots of elderly patients there, and a longer follow-up than a lot of our prospective trials that we look at. Awesome. And in terms of the groups themselves, can you tell us a little bit about the patients? There were some slight differences between the diabetes and the non-diabetes groups, but overall, the mean age was around 80 years old. They were mostly female, which is typical once you get people up to this age. And so it was about 60% female. The majority in both groups had hypertension, about a 12% rate of smoking, and about a quarter in each group had uh, hypercholesterolemia. 
Okay, so with the exception of them all being Catalan, this sounds like a pretty representative population of somebody that I might see in our clinic. Yeah, I think with that caveat that this was essentially an all Caucasian population, it's pretty representative of most GIM clinic patients. Excellent. Okay. And so given those patients, uh, what did they actually find when they looked at their interventions? Yeah. So of those who received statins in both groups, the vast majority, 85% of them were treated with low to moderate intensity statin therapy, which is pretty typical for a primary prevention statin. And then they actually found that exposure to the statin was not associated with a reduction in all-cause mortality or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease in the absence of diabetes. And when they looked at the diabetes group, those who were over age 85 also saw no benefit with statins. So the one group that did show benefit was people aged 75 to 84 who had diabetes. And what was the magnitude of the benefit there? So when they looked at all-cause mortality, that group saw a hazard ratio of 0.84, which gave a number needed to treat of 306. And when they looked at incidence of atherosclerotic disease, that group showed a hazard ratio of 0.76, or a number needed to treat of 164. So just to be clear then, they have four groups, so 75 to 85 without diabetes, no benefit, 85 plus without diabetes, no benefit, 85 plus with diabetes, no benefit, but in that group of 75 to 85 with diabetes, that's where they saw a fairly consistent benefit to being on statins. Is that fair? Yeah, that's pretty fair and a greater benefit when it came to new incident atherosclerotic disease and a somewhat lesser benefit for all-cause mortality. Perfect. And as far as the adverse events that they're measuring went, anything worth talking about there? No, they actually didn't see an increase in any adverse event in any of their groups. Okay, so that's encouraging news at least. So I think that those results are quite interesting, if maybe not surprising to me. Is there anything in this study here that you want to highlight in terms of the discussion? Any other points that you wanted to mention? Yeah, I think there's a few things that stand out. So just putting it in context a little bit, Prosper looked at older patients going on pravastatin, but lots of those were secondary prevention patients. And they also showed no benefit in a sub-analysis of the primary prevention group. Jupiter had a subset of older patients. There's been a couple of meta-analyses that included this age group, all of which had a, a bit of a younger skew to their patient groups. And those studies showed reduced cardiovascular events, but no benefit when it came to mortality. And then HOPE-3 showed a benefit over age 65, also a, a relatively younger group with a composite endpoint, including mortality, but they didn't have subgroup analyses that were akin to this study. So I think it's overall pretty consistent with studies we've seen, but gives us a nice focus on this older patient group that is often not included in randomized controlled trials. That's excellent. And obviously, this is a huge part of both your and my days is seeing patients in this group. So it's nice to have some information to guide us. Yeah, I think it's one of those questions that often comes to mind in this age group is we have a little bit more reluctance to start new medications. So having evidence one way or the other is really helpful. One of the other things that I thought was important to note is that it really is just examining new statin prescriptions in this group, and it doesn't really give us any guidance for stopping a primary prevention statin once somebody has entered this age group. Mm, so that's a pretty important caveat, I think. Yeah, lots of patients will come to us out of this group and say, I've been on this pill for 10 years. Do you think it would be okay for me to stop it? And 
I like to be able to say yes, but I don't think this is giving me guidance one way or the other. Okay, so that's important to note. Uh, and any other limitations or anything that you wanted to highlight around the study? I think just our usual caveat around the study type. So it's retrospective and non-randomized. And so it's always possible, even with the propensity matching, that there's something confounding the data that hasn't been eliminated through that statistical manipulation. Yeah, I think, like you said, that's unavoidable with a study of this nature, but they seem to have done their best to try and minimize that. And, and again, like you said, it is consistent with some other literature that's out there. So I guess the bottom line then is, do you buy it? Do you believe this? Yeah, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think the piece that stands out to me that makes the evidence even more believable is the group that they saw benefit in. So we already see diabetes as a statin-indicated condition, and that's the one group, the elderly but not very elderly, who had diabetes that saw benefits. So that puts the rest of the findings to be in perspective and says that it's probably believable. Okay, so then just to round this out then, let's go back to it, Tristan. Who does the study apply to and what are the main learning points here? So. The study's applying to patients who are 75 and above, who don't have an established cardiovascular disease diagnosis, who don't have other clear life-limiting diseases such as dementia, cancer, or end-stage renal disease. And the main learning points to me are that diabetes continues to be a reasonable statin-indicated condition at least up to age 84, and that there is no clear primary prevention benefit with statins for patients who are 75 and above in the absence of diabetes. Now, is this going to change the way that you practice at all? I think so. This is going to make me more comfortable not recommending a statin for primary prevention, or in fact, recommending not starting a statin for primary prevention in this age group. And it also is going to have me encourage my patients with diabetes to stay on their statin at least up to age 84 because they're continuing to benefit from it. But it does still leave me wondering about the ability to discontinue a statin in this patient group. Yeah, and I would agree with that. That discontinuing question is one that comes up not infrequently. But I think this does kind of reinforce a pattern of practice that I sort of started to adopt prior to this. And, and like you said, gives you a little bit more ammunition when you're discussing this with patients. So though, you know, I always do consider the fact that especially as we get into those older ages that not all 85 year olds are 85 years old, so to speak. And really it's about having a discussion with them, but definitely feel more comfortable leaning away from statins with this paper. Yeah, I think it, it helps me feel better when I have that conversation with patients about whether or not they should be starting a new, a new medication. Terrific. Okay. Well, thanks so much for bringing this uh, paper to the show. No problem. So with that, we'll uh, transition to the paper that I'm bringing to the show today. And we're going in a bit of a different direction here and talking about some um, broader epidemiologic trends in, in U.S. hospitals around hospital-acquired infections. So the paper that I wanted to talk about today is titled Changes in Prevalence of Healthcare-Associated Infections in U.S. Hospitals. And this was published by S.S. McGill et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine just the beginning of November of 2018. Yeah, this is an interesting paper. I'm glad you're bringing it to the show because I think it's got some really important information. Yeah, I found this to be a bit of a reassuring paper. The Really, the bottom line for this article uh, is that in a multi-center point prevalence survey of U.S. hospitals, the prevalence of hospital-acquired infections has decreased significantly between the years of 2011 and 2015 by almost a full percentage point, largely driven by reductions in surgical site infections as well as urinary tract infections. 
Yeah, I think that's, I agree with your use of the word reassuring. I think it helps us feel like we're doing something right to be moving in this direction. What was it that stood out to you about this article that made you want to talk about it today? So Tristan, you and I both work primarily in acute care hospitals, and I think we are very aware of how significant the issue is of hospital-acquired infections. A huge part of our day is taken up with activities like gowning and gloving and masks and isolation rooms and hand washing and removing catheters and education of other members of the healthcare team on how to reduce the risk of infections and, and harming our patients. And I really believe in a lot of those interventions, and there is data to support many of those interventions on kind of a, a micro level. But I guess what this paper asks is, in the grand scheme of things, are we making a difference? And is this emphasis that we're now placing on reducing healthcare-associated infections actually having an effect? Yeah, I think that's a question that everybody has when they get to their fifth yellow gown of the day is, is this really doing anything for my patients? <laughs> yeah. So give me the rundown of the study design. Okay, so the nice thing about this paper is it's a very, very straightforward study design. So this was a repeat study of one that was done in 2011. So they were a multi-center point prevalence survey, and the results of this study were just compared directly to the survey that was done in 2011. Sites were selected initially based on whether they had participated in the previous survey in 2011, and in this paper there was room to add additional sites um, by random selection from a list of hospitals within a given area. They used 10 different areas in 10 different states and selected up to 25 hospitals per area. And then who were the patients that were included from those hospitals? So they took their pool of, of selected hospitals across those 10 sites. And on the selected day, they randomly selected a day between May and September of 2015 for their point prevalence survey. On those days, they took a random sample of patients who were admitted to acute care beds in those hospitals and included them in their patient review. Any patient within that sample that was receiving antimicrobial therapy on that day had their records reviewed for whether they would qualify for a diagnosis of a healthcare-associated infection according to the 2011 National Healthcare Safety Network definitions. And that's just a little asterisk here that they actually used the 2011 definitions so that they could make that comparison to the initial 2011 survey. Right. I think that that's a really important step that they took to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples. Exactly. And so what was the question that they were asking? So again, it was a fairly straightforward question. They looked at the 2015 records. They assessed the prevalence on this one given day of what they felt were healthcare-associated infections, and they compared those to 2011 both directly as well as using multivariable log binomial regression to try and account for covariates um, such as differences in the patient population or hospital characteristics that might contribute to any demonstrated change in point prevalence. Okay, and then there was a pretty straightforward primary outcome as well. Yeah, so the primary outcome was quite simply the point prevalence of hospital-acquired infections, and they did break down it through secondary outcomes, looking at the, the various types of infections, including surgical site infections, urinary tract infections, pneumonia, etc. I really like how simple and straightforward the study design is. I know it was a lot of work on their part to gather this data, but it's so easy to understand that it leads to a really believable number at the end. Yeah, it's quite simply a snapshot of what's happening in these hospitals today and how does that compare to five years ago. All right, so what do they find? So they ended up enrolling just over 12,000 patients in this particular survey from 199 different hospitals and 
That data was compared with just over 11,000 patients from 183 hospitals in 2011. Of all the patients that were enrolled, just over a third of those qualified for a more detailed review based on the fact that they were receiving antimicrobial therapy. And were the patients roughly the same across those four years? They mostly were, yeah. They were similar in terms of age and gender. The 2015 participants tended to be from larger hospitals. And perhaps encouragingly, the 2015 patients were also less likely to have a central line or a urinary catheter in place at the time of this study. 2% less likely to have a central line and 5% less likely to have a catheter. So do you think that that alone is evidence that we're making progress, the fact that people have less of these infection-causing devices? I think it's probably hard to say that conclusively, given that this is just, you know, one day, but certainly given the practices that I am trying to employ in my day-to-day, and that's removing lines and catheters as quick as possible, I think it's encouraging to see that. Yeah, definitely. So, if we dive into it further then, of all those patients they reviewed, approximately 3.2% of patients in the 2015 survey met the definition of a healthcare-associated infection. And when they compared that to 2011, that number back then was 4%, so there was an absolute reduction in about 0.8% of patients. And that was significant. It was. So what about when they applied the uh, regression? So when they actually did put this into a multivariable regression, there was a number of covariates that were not surprisingly associated with an increased risk of infection. And that included being on a ventilator, having a central line in place, having a catheter in place, and also being from a larger hospital, having longer duration of admission, and just having an older age of patient. Interestingly, they actually used the year as a covariate in the regression, and the 2015 survey year was associated with an adjusted risk ratio of 0.84 for a decreased risk of infection. In other words, infections in 2015 were 16% less likely. So just to restate that, this was from a multivariable regression where they were already using covariates like the presence of catheters and central lines. So that reduction we see there should not be driven by the presence or less likely presence of these interventions, those have already been accounted for in the regression itself. So that should neutralize those as drivers for the infection and tell us that overall, we looks like we're doing better. And how did they handle the inclusion of new hospitals in the follow-up study? Yes. So they did go back and there was certainly more hospitals included in the 2015 study. So they did employ numerous sensitivity analyses to ensure that their comparison was a robust one. And one of those was including only the same 148 hospitals that were included in 2011. And really the results were quite similar in those sensitivity analyses. So this is great. They've basically applied as many different statistical manipulations as they can to demonstrate that this change is real. Yeah. And they are seeing it fairly consistently around that, you know, 15% reduction. And what about when they looked at the types of infections this time? So overall, the most common infections, not surprisingly, were pneumonias, as well as GI infections, which were primarily C. diff, and surgical site infections. When they compare between 2011 and 2015, the greatest reductions in infections they saw in surgical site infections, in urinary tract infections, and in other infections. So at least the urinary tract may be related to an increased drive to get catheters out. In part, although, like I said, they did try and account for that with their regression, yeah. All right. What else did you think was interesting in this paper? So... Again, I like this paper because it's just so practical and kind of easy to wrap our head around. And in showing that overall nearly 1% decrease in infections over four years, this 
is a trend that's somewhat consistent with other surveys and studies that have been done on this topic over the past 10 years. So this is not a one-off by any means. We do, in various studies now, have seen decreasing risk of infection in that same kind of range, which is encouraging. Unfortunately, one thing that the authors did highlight here that was a little bit discouraging is that while there was less prevalence, I should say, of healthcare-associated infections, that the percentage of patients in hospital who actually died during their admission with an infection was unchanged at about 10%. Yeah, so I think that that's a call to do better at treating these infections once people have them, but even just reducing the incidence of infection is going to help drive those absolute numbers down. One would think, yeah, I'd agree with that. A couple other important limitations to know is just that this is just a snapshot. We don't really have any data available to evaluate practice changes in these hospitals to kind of really get at some of the drivers as to why this is happening. So we are left guessing what are we doing that may be effective in helping us push the needle this way. But again, it is reassuring to me that we are, that we are seeing this trend. So one question I had for you that the authors didn't really discuss was we're seeing the same rate of ventilator-associated pneumonias in this study as we did in 2011. And when I'm working in the ICU, I see lots of interventions around decreasing VAP. So do you think this means that those interventions aren't having the desired effect? You know, I don't know the answer to that, Tristan. And I think that, again, highlights that, one, we don't have an idea of what behavioral changes at these hospitals may be driving these changes. And secondly, as this survey was done in you know, these U.S. hospitals, there's always the question of whether these results are even generalizable to Canada, as we see with with any literature that, that comes out of a different country. Yeah, fair point. So what are the big learning points in this article? So for me, just to bring this home, this is a comparison of two point prevalence surveys, which are showing a decrease in infections over the past five years of nearly 1%, suggesting one less infection for every 125 or so patients admitted to hospital, which is, I think, pretty clinically meaningful. The learning point here is that despite the potential issues with this type of study, as we've already talked about, it is reassuring to me that all of our efforts around preventing hospital-acquired infections, around gowns, around all of our antimicrobial stewardship that we do is worth continuing, even if, as you mentioned, when you're on your sixth gown of the morning, it can be a pain sometimes. All right, I'll keep putting the gowns on. Yeah, I guess that's the take home here. Okay, so thanks for that discussion then, Tristan. I think that wraps up our papers for the day. And it brings us to your first ever Good Stuff segment. So you've heard the show before, you know how it goes. So Tristan, tell us what you're reading about. Yeah, so I wanted to share on your podcast a Good Stuff of another podcast that I've been listening to. So over the past week, I essentially binge listened to a podcast called Dr. Death. It's fascinating and frustrating a story about a neurosurgeon in Texas who harmed more than 30 patients through a combination of his own ineptitude and the unwillingness of hospitals and the state board to act against him. The reporting is fascinating in this piece and with a bit of medical knowledge, even though I'm not a neurosurgeon, hearing the descriptions of the surgeries that he performed was just jaw-dropping. So I listened to the whole thing much faster than I listen to most podcasts. That sounds uh, pretty dark. It's definitely dark. I think that there is an element to it of feeling good about our medical system because it's hard to imagine this happening in our public system in Canada, but really interesting. Hmm. Okay, all right. So I'm going to take a positive spin on this one. So I read an article which was entitled, The Key to a Long Life Has Little to Do with Good Genes. 
And the reason that this article caught my eye is I'm really interested in this idea of big data and of databases and and really of kind of coming up with more creative ways of asking questions that we're seeking answers to, aside from designing a randomized control trial, which is obviously expensive and labor intensive and lengthy and you know has all these limitations. So there's so much data out there that I find it really interesting when people come up with innovative ways of using it. So this article describes um, the work of a new company under the Google umbrella called Calico, which is short for the California Life Company. So Calico's mission is to tease apart the biology of aging in terms of trying to you know, you know, defeat death one day. And they actually embarked on a study with Ancestry.com to try and get into and to answer some fundamental questions around how much do your genes contribute to your lifespan. So previously it was thought that your genetic makeup probably contributes somewhere between 15 and 30 percent to your longevity and this company Calico worked with Ancestry.com to take care of a massive database of family trees to try and dive into that question a little bit more and interestingly found that it's probably a lot less than that. So well, this article really focuses on a phenomenon called assortative mating, which is basically the idea that we're more likely to select mates with similar lifespans than random chance would predict. And that's what came out of this study using this big anonymized database. So according to their study, probably less than 10% of our longevity actually is attributed to our genes and far more of it comes down to the other things in life, which I'm choosing to take a positive spin on because it means that we have some control over that. So an interesting study, an innovative way of asking this question and hopefully um, kind of an inspiring result for, for those of us who need to you know, keep finding motivation to, to, to make those positive lifestyle changes. Yeah, sounds like having my grandparents live as long as they did isn't as important as I thought, and I should probably go to the gym. Yeah, that's been a point of pride for me too, and I guess I probably can't uh, ride on their coattails any longer. Okay, so Tristan, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks again for being here. Really enjoyed it, and I uh, hope that we see you back. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for having me, Pax. The Browns Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, Director of Quality and Evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in. <laughs>